While they're finding their seats, why don't we open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 17 today. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 34. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And if you're a, if you're a note taker, my advice to you today is to, to write small. It's just, there's a lot in here just, just to warn you. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thus ends our reading of God's revealing word. May all who hear it understand that Christ truly is not far from them. Athens is an old, old city. One of the oldest cities that, that is still in existence today. 
You, you see, it was founded more than, more than 5,000 years ago. And so when Paul entered in, he, he was entering into a rich and long history of Greek society. It was in Athens that, that the Greek religion, that their pantheon of gods first thrived. It was in Athens that democracy was first introduced. It was in Athens that philosophy was first born. A man named Socrates devoted his life to the idea that the, that the rational mind was capable of answering many of life's most difficult questions. He, he developed what is known as a dialectic method where questions are, are, are continually asked until one arrives at the truth. And yet Socrates' philosophy eventually got him into trouble. For the year 399 B.C., he, he was put on trial. What were the charges? Well, he was charged with corrupting the youth of Athens and speaking against the gods by introducing foreign deities. And it is this last charge that is of interest for us today, the, this introduction of foreign deities. Basically because Socrates was challenging the existence and the nature of the, of the traditional gods through his philosophical questioning, the people of Athens were getting upset. And so this philosopher was brought before the Areopagus, which was the ruling council of that city. There he was tried and, and convicted and eventually sentenced to death. Forced to drink hemlock, he, he breathed his last. And yet his philosophical methods survived. Now, now the reason I bring this all up is because most sermons that I have heard on Paul's discourse in Athens begin with a faulty premise. And that premise is this. That Paul was somehow contextualizing the gospel to fit the culture of the Athenians. What I mean by contextualizing is that, is that he was looking for, for talking points from their society in order to build this bridge to Jesus. In essence, every time I've heard of this passage preached, it's preached in such a manner as to make it seem that Paul was just having this friendly conversation with the religious elite of Athens, where he shared Jesus in a way that would be acceptable to the culture of their day. And yet to make this the theme of this passage is to miss the point. Paul, Paul was not having some friendly discussion with these Athenians. No, rather, rather he was on trial before the very same council that had sentenced Socrates to death. Paul was once again fighting for his life, just like in every other city it seems, Right? And so he, he wasn't sharing the gospel per se. Rather, he was making a defense for his right to share the gospel. And thus, in his argumentation, Paul was pointing to some of the traditions from Athens' past that used to be deemed wise and true, and yet were now either long forgotten or seen as passé. And so in reality, much of what Paul was saying was, was counter to the current culture of first century Athens. 
to put this in a, in a modern context, it, w- it would be like using the writings of Shakespeare to correct the errors of today. And yet this was Paul's best defense to prove his innocence. For, for if he could show to his audience that his teachings were in agreement with, with a part of Greek culture, well then his name would be cleared and he could continue to preach Jesus. And so this is what's going on here in our text today. Let's, let's dive in and see how this plays out. Look at verses 16 through 21. Excuse me. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now now there's a lot that's going on in in these few verses if we're going to understand uh, what this passage is all about. And so let's, let's take this step by step to see if we can gain some understanding. First, let's, let's talk about this, the city of Athens. I mean, what was Athens like when Paul had first arrived? Like I said before, Athens was a city with a rich, rich history, a long history. And it was probably the most famous Greek city um, at, at that time. And yet it had become a city that was well past its prime. The, the Greeks had long been overtaken by the Romans, and, and so much of their own culture was now under Roman influence. They had even built temples to, to, and had begun to worship both the goddess Roma as well as uh, the long-since-dead Augustus Caesar. And yet, what gods didn't they worship? The city was full of idols, as, as Paul noticed. Every nook and cranny had a god. These people were always looking for, for new deities to worship. And it, it is said that there were, there, that there were over 30,000 gods in Athens. I mean, consider that, 30,000 gods. It's no wonder that Paul was provoked in his spirit. I mean, these people were trapped. These, these people were lost. They, they were pretty much worshiping anything and everything except the one true God. And only Jesus would be able to set them free. But it wasn't just idol worship that was the issue in Athens, for there were also those who were caught up in philosophy. There, there were many who believed that their salvation would only come through human reason. And there were, there were two main schools of thought. There, 
there, there were that predominated the city. There, there were the Epicureans and, and the Stoics. Let's talk about Epicureanism first. I mean, what what was it that these Epicureans believed? Well, they believed that everything that had come into existence had come about by some cosmic accident. Even the gods. And so it was just everything that exists was there by accident. Sound familiar? I would say much of our modern-day scientists hold to some form of Epicurean philosophy, this idea that everything comes from nothing. But unlike the scientists of our day, the, the Epicurean philosophers still believed in the supernatural, that the gods were real. And yet they believed that these gods were aloof, that they were far off and, and couldn't be touched that they didn't interfere in the affairs of men. And since these gods were far off, well, that meant that there was no accountability. And so their goal in life was simple. Gain as much pleasure as you possibly can while you are able. Whatever makes you feel good, do it. It was a kind of philosophical hedonism. The, the Stoics, on the other hand, were far different. They believed that the material world was, was all that there was, and thus God was present in all material things. It was a type of pan-entheism, this idea that the whole universe is contained within God. And yet with Stoicism, it was kind of a, a twist on panentheism, for they also believed that God himself was contained within the whole universe, that they were one and the same. And because this was the case, they believed that, that God or, or the universe determined and governed all things through his natural laws. And therefore, they did not hold to the supernatural. These myths of the gods were simply that, myths. They weren't real. And yet these men also believed that even though everything was determined through the natural laws, humans still had free will. And so virtue became supremely, supremely important to them. And so you can see why these were rival schools, right? These Epicureans and these Stoics. I mean, they, 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 they pretty much lived opposite lifestyles. And yet with the Stoics and in their efforts towards virtue, they, they, would, they would repress their emotions, particularly any negative emotions. And so when like bad things would happen to them, feelings like anger, feelings like sadness were, were supposed to be pushed to the side as those things would only lead to more suffering. No, they, they believe that true happiness could only be obtained by accepting that, that matters were, were out of your control. That, that the universe or God, which were one and the same, would have its say, and you just needed to accept it. Now, now when you boil this all down, the, what, what we see is we have, on the one hand, we have the idol worshipers, right? The everyday folk of Athens that were worshiping these 30,000 gods. 
And then we have the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And what you will discover is that, is that on the one hand, you had people who were enslaved to idolatry. And on the other hand, you, you had those who could care less about those idols. Rather, they were relying on the abilities of their own minds, their own human reasoning to explain the world around them. And so, 30,000 gods, and then we had philosophy, right? And yet these philosophies resulted also in a distorted view of God. And then comes Paul, right? Preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He, he was once again stirring the pot by bringing in this new teaching. They called him a babbler. That he was introducing foreign deities. These were the two reactions to Paul's message. Let's consider them for a moment. First, babbler. What does it mean that Paul's a babbler? I mean, this wasn't really just a reaction. This was an accusation. The, the, the actual Greek word that we have so kindly translated as babbler in our English text is, is pronounced spermologos in the Greek. Spermos meaning seed, and logos, I hope you know that word, because it means word, right? Um, and, and so you, you, you had this combination of these two Greek words, and it, it was a derogatory term comparing someone to a bird. For birds, what they do is they will gather seeds and kind of spread them all about haphazardly. And so a spermologos was someone who, who would pick up these scraps of knowledge and, and spread it about without really knowing what he is truly talking about. I think today we have plenty of spermologos in our society, do we not? I mean, you just have to go to social media and you'll discover who they are. People who are spreading seeds without really knowing what those seeds are planting. Now, now the other accusation that was hurled Paul's way that was that Paul was introducing foreign deities. And why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And in many ways, Jesus was foreign to these people. For he was born a Jew and he according to Scripture, is the exact representation of his Father in heaven, the one true God, a God whom this culture had repressed and forgotten. Here's the thing. Even though Athens already had some 30,000 gods, it was considered illegal to introduce foreign deities without the permission of the Areopagus Council. Like I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, it was the introducing of foreign deities that, that, that had convicted Socrates. He too was before the Areopagus. And so when Paul was brought before this council, this wasn't some friendly discussion, as many today want to portray it. Rather, Paul was on trial facing serious charges. And it was this council who would decide his fate. Would he be allowed to continue with his preaching? 
Or would he be deemed a disturber of the peace, a man who needed to be silenced? Was this new thought that he was introducing going to be tolerated or not? And yet in all this, there's an irony, is there not? Luke lets us know back in verse 21 that, that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so there were new ideas coming into the city all the time. And yet the only time a person would be brought before the Areopagus was when that teaching was in contradiction to the traditions of their city. When it was causing a stir and disrupting the values of their day. Apparently Paul's message was doing all of this. And this is why Paul needed to give a defense and what we'll, we will discover as we look at his defense is that, is that he would actually be the one who would turn the tables upon them, demonstrating that, that they were the ones who were not following the, the, the traditions of Athens. And he would do so by pointing them to their own history. Let's, let's look at this defense. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul begins his defense by addressing both the council and the people of Athens, and he, and he comments on how religious they truly were. And how could they not be, right? With those 30,000 gods strewn throughout their city? They were a very, very religious people. And yet there was one item of worship that, that particularly caught Paul's eyes. This altar to the, to the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You see, Paul would use their own history in order to demonstrate his own legitimacy. And so his argument was that, was that he wasn't proclaiming a foreign God, as many were suggesting. Rather, he was proclaiming a God whom they had worshipped in their past. For this altar had been there for centuries. An altar that this particular generation probably knew very little about. But why was this altar there to begin with? I mean, who was this unknown God? Most likely this altar was built as a type of precautionary measure, right? You see, even, even though the, the, the people were worshiping so many deities, perhaps they had missed one. Perhaps there was a God out there whom they did not know. And so they built this altar in order to worship in their ignorance. Basically, Paul was pointing out how in their history they had, they, they had introduced this, this altar because they were simply afraid. Afraid that there was some other deity that they had missed and they did not want to offend this unknown God. And they had missed a deity. 
they missed the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And now Paul was going to reveal to this people who this unknown God is. Look at, look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so here we see phase two of Paul's defense. He is now revealing to these people who this unknown God is. When, when I lived in Thailand, one of the greatest obstacles in bringing the gospel to the Thai people was getting the people to understand the concept of creation. For, for the Thai religion is, is anchored in Buddhist thought. And Buddhism does not contain a creation narrative. Rather, Buddhism is a cyclical religion, meaning that they believe that everything just simply repeats itself. This is where the idea of reincarnation comes from, that there is no beginning, nor is there an end, just this never-ending cycle that, that continues on and on and on forever. You were born, and you die, and then you were born again, and then you die again. It's kind of like your dishes, right? They're clean, and then you eat, and they, they need to be washed again, and then they're clean again, and, and then you eat again, and you need to wash them again. Or maybe your laundry, I don't know. It goes on and on and on, am I right? This is what Buddhist thought is like. And so a God who is both the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that is a hard thing for the Thai people to grasp. And in Athens, Paul faced a similar challenge, particularly when it came to these philosophical schools. For the idea of a creator God go, went, went against both the beliefs of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Remember, it was the, the Epicureans who believed that the whole material universe was just some cosmic accident, even the gods. And then it was the Stoics who believed that the material world was all that there was and that God was within and limit, limited to this material world. And yet, when you have a creator God, a God who has made everything, it means that, that this world well, for one, it's not an accident, as the Epicureans believed. But not only that, but by definition, a creator God must exist outside of the material world. For he cannot be constrained by the thing that he has created. And so for the Stoics, this idea was just nonsense. And so what we see in this exchange is, is not Paul contextualizing to the culture of the day. Rather, he was bringing in a point of contention. This, this unknown God whom they, they had an altar to was not like the gods whom they were worshiping. For he is a creator God, a God who is sovereign over all things. But there's more, right? For this, this unknown God, what does Paul say? He does not live in temples made by man. 
And it is at this point that both the Stoics and the Epicureans would actually probably be in agreement. And yet not for the same reasons as Paul. You see, the Stoics would, would say that God is in everything. And so there is no need for temples, for he is already close to us. In fact, you are a part of him, and he is a part of you, and, and however that makes sense. And for the Epicureans who believe that the gods just didn't care about humans, well, they were far off and distant, and so they believed that these man-made temples were simply pointless, that no matter how hard you tried, you, you, you would never get their attention. And yet the unknown God that Paul was now making known is both transcendent as well as imminent. He is far off and close at the same time. It is in his transcendence and his far offness that he makes his home in the heavens and thus does not live in man-made temples. And yet he is not out of reach, for in his imminence, in his closeness, he draws near to those who seek him. And no more do we see the nearness of God than when you consider Jesus. For he is God incarnate, fully man and fully God. And he made his dwelling among us. Not in the temple within Jerusalem, but in the tabernacle that is his own, that is his own body. Paul continues further in his revelation of this unknown God. He, he also says that this unknown God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. In other words, God is sufficient within himself. He doesn't need any of the sacrifices made by those idol worshipers, nor does he need any of the pious works of the Stoics. He is sufficient within himself. For he is both the one who creates and the one who sustains. And so we humans, we, we can offer him nothing. Rather, we are the ones who are in desperate, desperate need of him. We need him to come to us. To deliver us from our sinful, sinful state. And this leads into Paul's next revelation. For in his mercy, this, this unknown God provides everything. And I mean everything that we need. Life, breath, everything. Again, one can't help but to think of Jesus. This one who is the way, the truth, and the life. True life comes through him. And then Jesus, what does he do? He, he sends out his Holy Spirit, the very breath of God. And he offers us everything. For he is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. When he died on the cross in our place. God offers to us everything. We are in need of him. He is not in need of us. Well, I hope you can see by now that this unknown God that Paul was now making known 
is, is far, far superior to any concept of a God that these Athenians had ever conceived. And yet, even though he is far superior, this unknown God also has a deep, deep love for mankind. He, he desires to have a relationship with us. Look at, look at verses 26 and 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And so here we see Paul continuing his de defense by shifting the topic from who this unknown God is to who we are in relation to him. And there are four assertions that Paul is making here. One, Paul asserts that the origin of man comes from this unknown God. And it is at this point that Paul would diverge from both philosophical schools. For the Epicureans believed that everything was created by chance, and that the gods were just as much of a creation as humans were. And the Stoics, on the other hand, well, they would contend that since the universe is God, that humans aren't necessarily a creation of his, but that they are, in essence, a part of him. They are him. And so on this point, Paul was at odds with pretty much both philosophies. Assertion number two. God not only determines mankind's existence, but, but, but he also determines the condition of their existence as well. Paul talks about the times and the places in which people are born into. This is God's providence. A point at which the Stoics, with their deterministic mindset, would have agreed with to some extent. And yet the Epicureans would have found this notion to be absurd, as their gods were far off, not really caring when or where men are born. Assertion number three. The times and places that God sets for man are established for a purpose. And that purpose is that they might find their way to him and be in fellowship. Again, this, this flies in the face of everything that the Epicureans believed, for their gods were aloof and unknowable, right? And it disagreed with the Stoics as well, for, for they taught that all humans were already connected with God since they were a part of God. And so there was no need to find God when you are already a part of him. And so we see disagreement there as well. But this leads into Paul's fourth assertion, that this unknown God is not far from us. Rather, he is presently active in this world. He, he is not detached like the gods of the Epicureans. Neither is he within mankind in the way the Stoics believed. Rather, he draws near to us that he might restore the broken relationship that we once had with him. And how does God do this? How, how does he draw near and mend that fractured bond? Well, he does so through his son. 
through Jesus Christ, this one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now these four assertions that Paul had made should have, it shouldn't have been foreign to these Athenians. For these were concepts that were within their history. And, and Paul would demonstrate this to them. He, he would then quote two different Greek men, Epimenides, who wrote in the 7th century B.C., and Eratus, who wrote in the 3rd century B.C. Look, look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Those are the words of Epimenides. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. The words of Eratus. And so Paul was not introducing new ideas into the Athenian landscape. Rather, he was taking what God had already revealed to them through his natural revelation. And now he was expounding upon it, expanding upon it. He, He was demonstrating how Jesus had fulfilled these things. So what do we have? Thus far, we have seen three phases of Paul's four-phase defense, have we not? Paul had used their own history to prove his legitimacy. He then made known to them this unknown God. He then demonstrated who we are in relation to this unknown God. And this brings us to the final phase of Paul's defense. He would now speak to our responsibility now that this unknown God has been revealed. Look at verses 29 through 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so if we are God's children, if God is the one who brought humans into existence, then it is impossible for human beings to bring God into existence, neither through their handicraft nor through their imagination. God cannot be shaped or formed or even thought up, for that matter. Rather, he must be the one who reveals himself to us. And he has done so through his son, Jesus Christ, this one who has risen from the dead. In other words, this this unknown God can now be known through Jesus. And that is why these Athenians needed to repent. For the worship of these false gods would not be tolerated. This unknown God has now been shown to be far, far superior to all the other 30,000 gods that were within that city. And he would bring about his judgment to all those who continued in their idolatrous ways. Now, on the surface, this call to repentance may seem that it was only going out to those superstitious Athenians, to those who were caught up bowing down to man-made idols and sacrificing in man-made temples. And this warning is going out to them, but not just to them. 
but to the philosophical minds as well, to the Epicureans and to the Stoics who, who with their imaginations and their reason had created their own gods. And while they may not have shaped these gods out of gold or silver or stone, they had shaped them with their words and with their writings. And so they were just as guilty as the man who was bowing down in the temple of Zeus. But now, now that this unknown God has been revealed to them, now that Jesus has come, now that Christ has fulfilled his saving mission by dying for the sins of men and by rising from the dead, and now that, that, that Jesus has sent out his missionaries into the world to be his witnesses, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. The times of ignorance are over because this unknown God has now been proclaimed to them. And therefore, they must bend the knee to their true creator. And this unknown God has been revealed to you as well. Who is it that you are worshiping? What are the idols that are in your life? What are the images that are taking place, taking the place of the one true God? What are, what are the philosophies that you are clinging to? Philosophies that, that paint a distorted picture of your Father in heaven. The command is to repent, is to turn to Jesus, to flee to this one who reveals to you the unknown God. And yet for those who refuse to repent, Paul gives this warning. One that God has appointed today. That, that all of history is heading towards a climactic finish culminating with God's justice. Two, that God has appointed a judge, namely this Jesus. Christ will sit upon his throne and, and he will demand an account for your life. And finally, three, it is only through this resurrected Jesus that one can be assured of their salvation. Dear friends, Jesus is the divine judge through which all must pass. And unless you are relying upon both his saving work at the cross as well as his victory over the grave through his resurrection, unless you are relying on those things, well, then you are still lost in your sins and deemed guilty. And it doesn't matter how many gold statues you bow down to. And it doesn't matter if, like the Epicureans, you, you bring forth this great philosophical argument in an effort to excuse your sins. And it doesn't matter if, like the Stoics, you live this pious life, for you will never be pious enough to satisfy this unknown God. No. The only thing that matters is whether you have repentant faith in Jesus. This one who, who, who has revealed to you the unknown God.
And it was this, with this warning that leads us to the end of our passage as we see the reaction of the Areopagus Council. Look at verses 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But, the, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so, so here we see three different reactions, do we not? We, we, we see the scoffers, we see those who are curious, and we see those who accept the message. The scoffing due to Paul's claim of the resurrection, right? Curiosity and, and that there were some who just desired to hear more. You piqued my interest. <laughs> and finally, acceptance by men and women like Dionysius and Damaris, those who believed in this Jesus and the unknown God, unknown God who was revealed through him. And so the question remains, where do, where do you stand? Are you so caught up in your idolatries and in, in your philosophical thinkings that, that you scoff at the name of Jesus? Or has your curiosity been piqued? Are you open to hearing more about who Jesus is? Or have you been convinced? Convinced that this unknown God can now be known. Known through our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to him today and draw near. Draw near to this now revealed God. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. And you revealed yourself to us through your Son. We no longer have to live in ignorance but now we can see your goodness. We can see your greatness. We can see your kindness and your mercy and your justice and your grace. And so we ask now that you would help us to turn from our broken ways. Help us to repent from all of our idolatrous actions and all our, of our philosophical thinkings. And help us to turn to you as we look to Jesus, to this one who has revealed to us who you are. We can only do these things through the working of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask you to fill us and to guide us and to lead us. We need you. You do not need us. Help us to understand that. And help us to draw near to you as you draw near to us. We pray this in, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.